You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Hey, church, listen, one day we're going to come face to face with the holiness of God. And all the words of his holy word will be proved right. And all the problems of this world will fall away. And the righteousness, the righteous ones will be judged based on the blood of Jesus Christ. And those that do not know him will be judged to eternal damnation in hell. And we will know the holiness of God fully. And we will tremble in his presence. And I pray that we tremble now. And there's a great story of this in Acts chapter 5 that made the church tremble. And I want you to go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Oh, kids, third grade and down, you're dismissed. Sorry. <laughs> I was wondering why Madison looked so eager standing there with all their kids like, I need to, I'm not going to be able to listen unless I get rid of a few of these kids. Well, while you're turning to Acts 5, verse 1, I want to tell a story about a guy named George C. Parker, who was one of eight children born to Irish parents in New York uh, on March 16, 1860. And you, you may know that uh, in the late 1800s, New York was kind of a melting pot of ethnicity, kind of still is. And uh, surely some of our own ancestors came through those ports up there. And uh, some of those unsuspecting immigrants... Uh, would get off their their boats and they would encounter a well-dressed man named Parker. We have a picture of him here. And if you're wondering what's in his hand, that's the Statue of Liberty. And in the background is the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, they would, this Parker, this is an actual image of him, he would engage these, these unsuspecting immigrants in casual conversation. Uh, and that's where the deep fake began. He would introduce himself as none other than the owner of the Brooklyn Bridge, and uh, and he would say, to, which it was completed in 1883, so it was around that time, and he would tell them, uh, look, I'm looking for workers to work toll booths on the bridge, and so, you know, I'd love, you know, if, if you're interested, and they would be, yeah, you know, here they're immigrants, they don't have any money, and so he takes them to the bridge where he had posted a sign on the bridge that said, bridge for sale, and he knew that they would inevitably see the sign, and so they were like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to work at your toll booth, but like, what's up with the bridge for sale? He goes, oh yeah, the bridge is for sale for the right price, and, but you know, I'm, I'm looking to maybe sell it, and, and then you, whoever I sell it to could set up their own toll booths and charge whatever they wanted you know, for, for people walking across the bridge and such. And so they would, these patsies would fall for it. He even had an office set up uh, nearby. And so they would see dollar signs and uh, he would use counterfeit deeds and he negotiated prices ranging from $75 to $50,000. And this was in the, you know, the late 1800s, so a lot of money. Now, once they had paid Parker, they would make a plan to install their own toll booths, right? So they thought, okay, this is my bridge now. I'm going to put my booths up. And they had the deeds and everything. And the police would show up you know, and laugh them off the bridge. you know. But Parker was long gone. And they say that... Uh, he sold the Brooklyn Bridge at least twice a week for maybe up to 40 years. 
And in addition to selling the Brooklyn Bridge, he also sold Madison Square Garden, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Statue of Liberty, and Ulysses S. Grant's tomb. He would say he was his grandson. And in 1908, they thought they had this con man wrapped up, and they had him in court charging him with fraud, obviously. But before court commenced, he donned a sheriff's coat that had been put on the coat rack and a hat and slipped out and evaded them for another uh, few years, but finally in oh, another 20 years. But in uh, 1928, Judge Alonzo McLaughlin sentenced Parker to mandatory uh, life in Sing Sing prison. This is a news clipping from that. Parker died eight years later in 1936, but not before amusing inmates and all those prison guards with his tall stories. George C. Parker goes down in history as one of the greatest con men ever. <laughs> and there's another con artist from first century AD that could have given uh, George Parker a run for his money, and his name was Ananias. And just so we're not confused, the book of Acts reveals three men named Ananias. Uh, There's the Ananias in Acts 5, which we're looking at today, who was a supposed follower of Christ, known especially for lying to Peter and, and, and God about his offering to the church. And then there was an Ananias in Acts chapter 9 who preached the gospel to Paul and was instrumental in launching Paul's ministry. And then there's the Ananias in Acts 23 who was the wicked Jewish priest. You remember he struck Paul across the face, or had him struck. But today we're covering the first one in Acts 5, the, the Ananias married to Sapphira. So we go from 2 Kings 5.1 last week in the Old Testament to Acts 5.1 in the New Testament. So let's read this together. Acts 5, verse 1, these are the words of God. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I want to ask Forrest Griffin, one of our firefighters, to come and ask God's blessing on the service today. I like that stash for us. <laughs> Wearing that well. Is that a, just a fireman thing, Vince? All right. And I like the way y'all got together and matched together. That's cute. That's really Coordinated. Cute. Go ahead, Forrest. Y'all pray with me. Father God, I want to First and foremost, thank you for allowing us to gather together today, uh, allowing us to gather in your name with your sons and daughters. I pray that we not take that for granted. Mm -hmm. I ask that the time we do have here together serve to honor and glorify you. 
And I pray that uh, you pray, pray your blessing, blessing on the words that Went has prepared for us. Yeah. I ask that it not simply be words prepared by Went, but uh, that it be your words spoken yeah. through him. It's in Christ's time I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for it. Well, there was a great fear that fell on the church. And in Acts 2, you know, Acts 2 is a beautiful uh, picture of what the new, new, newly established churches were, were doing as a body of Christ uh, in the New Testament. And part of what was happening that still happens today was physical and spiritual healing, just like we saw in Naaman's story in the Old Testament last week. Well, in the New Testament, just after Peter and John had healed a lame beggar in Acts chapter 3, this big crowd gathers together and, you know, Peter's not going to pass up an opportunity to share the gospel. So he begins to share the gospel to this huge crowd and it gets him arrested, but not before Acts 4, 4 happens, which says many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000 with, with women and children. I mean, we're talking way more than double Pentecost happened right there. You understand? I mean, this is massive, mass amounts of people coming to Jesus. And so the Sadducees arrested them. Of course, they eventually released them. And in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 23, we see when they released them, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Verse 31, Acts 4. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't just continue to speak in tongues, by the way. They were speaking the word of God with boldness. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, why am I sharing all that with you? Because it sets up these uh, a list of facts about deep fakes that we learned from Acts chapter 5. And it all was set up, precipitated by, I believe, this gift, this generous gift of Barnabas, willful, not coerced, but of his own volition. And the first of these facts about deep fakes is that deep fakes always seem to follow mighty works of God. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a pattern here, and I don't know if you've noticed it, uh, in all these spiritual con artists, right? You'll find many of these deep fakes that we, that we have studied and will study happen right after a great miracle of God. And it's ironic that, uh, like Naaman last week, whose name meant gracious in ancient Syrian, uh, Ananias' name ironically means Jehovah is gracious, which is even more specific you know, testament to the source of grace. And it wasn't just his name, right? It was all these sincere new believers that Ananias and Sapphira were hanging around. These people that they called brothers and sisters in Christ. And they saw, they witnessed healing after healing. They would have witnessed all these people calling on the name of the Lord and being baptized. And in the midst of all that, just like Kamikaze Gehazi last week, we see this pattern 
right? So why the pattern? Why, does, why do con artists seem to always come out right after great miracles of God? I'll tell you why. Because Satan always wants God's glory, and he does this in at least two ways. And the first is distraction. Satan had stirred up the world against itself. Remember, uh, the world was in chaos then, not so different than it is now. Christians were being persecuted. Rome was dominating the social and political uh, landscape. And, but Satan's methods weren't working. The church was growing. So he needed another plan of attack, right? The direct approach. Robbing people of possessions wasn't working. Lowering the standard of living wasn't working. Raining down terror on the Jews from every side wasn't working, right? You couldn't slow the church down. I got news for the world now. You're not going to slow God's church down. Like the more persecution you bring on it, the more it's going to grow. I promise you that based on the history of the church. And so all this was going on because the devil needed another plan of attack. He needed a covert inside job. He needed a spiritual distraction. And so he entices Ananias, right? Because he's fighting for attention to be deflected from Jesus and the spirit-filled obedience of the people of God, like Barnabas. Remember, wicked people often take as much delight in, in the downfall of others as they do their own victories. Kind of like being an Alabama football fan, <laughs> right? It's not about who wins, it's about who loses, right? You can take that however you want. All right, which Arkansas did give them a run for their money, Bill. Just wanna, just, all right, thank you, Bill. Bill says I never mentioned Arkansas, all right? Or Lindy, all right. We don't care who wins, right? We care who loses. <laughs> That's a rivalry. Paul was fearful of this rivalry. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You're going to be distracted. He's afraid that they're going to take their eyes off the ball, off the preeminence of Christ. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Did you know it doesn't say he comes to steal, kill, and destroy? It says only. This is the only reason he's here to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's not just our lives and our faithfulness to God's word and our biblical obedience and our consistent gathering to worship and to feast on the word of God. It's not just our families. It's, just not, it's not just our own personal faith that he wants to rob. He wants to deflect the devil doesn't just want the spotlight. He wants to steal it from Christ and the example of other Christians. You know, magic tricks are all about distraction. I get you looking at the right hand so I can trick you with the left. Right? The enemy wants to distract from the victories and the miracles of our conquering king. Church, listen, I don't care. Election season, Israel's bombing, all these things going on in the world. Yes, we should be praying for our government. Yes, we should be praying for Israel. Yes, we should be praying for God's return, which seems imminent. But I'm going to tell you something. We don't need to miss the victories and miracles of God. I do get tired of Christians talking more about negative things than they do about the God they worship. Do you really believe the kingdom of God is being built? Or are you just going to talk about man's kingdom? All you're doing is propagating the news you hate by saying it over and over instead of giving God the glory. Don't bit get distracted about the main thing. We're headed to an eternity with a holy God. Don't take your eyes off that. That's gonna happen. <laughs> and may God help us. Acts 4, uh, 4.37, 
We see Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Satan knows he can't stop God's victories, but he can blow enough smoke that you can't see the fire. And that's what he's doing. I believe he's doing that in the world right now. Just, it's just distractions. When you're so generous and you're so encouraging that your own friends nickname you son of encouragement, that is an example that brings strength to the church and glory to God. And the devil wanted to deflect from that, not just from the good news, not just from the good testimony of Barnabas, but from the glory of God. Doesn't matter who wins, as long as it's not the kingdom of God, as long as it's not a family of God, as long as it's not a marriage of God, as long as it's not a child of God. Anybody can win but us. There's the devil's distraction, but then there's our inaction. There's two points of inaction the devil desires. Inaction by the church against blatant public displays of sin within the church and bad doctrine. And inaction by God's people to be generous like Barnabas. What, what if Peter had said, you know what, who cares? Who cares? I mean, we're, poor people are getting money. Who cares who's given it? Who cares how they gave it? You know, big deal. It doesn't matter. Oh, I mean, God will deal with Ananias and Sapphira. We don't need to say anything, right? But by the way, the church, we just got thrown into jail, right? We just got out. We don't want the church getting a bad reputation, people thinking, you know. And then these givers to the church, they're going to say, well, I'm not giving to a bunch of greedy, stingy people. You know, we're, we're going to taint everything if we expose this sin. But that's mankind's way of thinking, isn't it? Church, what if Peter had done that? I'm going to tell you what, it, what would have happened to the church. We'd have all been a bunch of weak, watered-down tea. You know, no salt, just compromise. No, no, no flavor in the world. We're supposed to be people of flavor, right? We're supposed to be salty, right? We would have been a watered-down. I know a church right now across town that's exploding with growth and salvation. But there's some doctrinal issues that are unbiblical and the lay people are trying to deal with it. And if they don't, they're just gonna be a, a building of, uh, they're gonna, they're all propagating a worldly kingdom based on lies and selfish ambition. May God help them. And friend, it, it's painful to expose sin in others because we know that we're sinners ourselves and we don't like to, we, we use that as our excuse to not obey God's word and to expose the lies of other people. And we risk handling it the wrong way. We risk uh, looking like we're prideful and vengeful toward our own brothers in Christ. We risk all of those mighty deeds being watered down to nothing. But again, that's man's way of thinking. Because if we fail to act when we see doctrinal and biblically moral fallacies in the church, we wound our own family. People come to me all the time and say, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. And -so. I said, well, did you confront them about it? Well, no. Well, if I do it, then they're going to know that you told me about it. Why don't you go do it? Follow Matthew 18. Confront them. You, you're, you're a sinner just like them. Go in humbly. Say, hey, look, I know I'm no better than you, but look, this looks off base to me. Am I, am I wrong? You know, go in humble. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. By the way, Believers who fail to confront blatant sin in others, despite their own sin, those believers are accomplices to the crime. Acts 5 verse 1, 
But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some for himself. Her knowledge of blatant sin exposed her to the same deadly demise as her wicked husband. If Peter hadn't corrected them, by the way, he did that by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, not in the flesh. The church would have become a, a watered down, uh, hypocritical gathering. And no true believer wants to be part of a family of fakes. I thank God. I don't think Piperton as a whole is, is, a, is fake. I know we can be fake individually, but I don't believe we are as a church. Deep fakes follow mighty works of God through the weapons of distraction and inaction. Second, deep fakes long for the praise of man. When a person doesn't know their own value in Christ, I look at all these, you know, social media people and people becoming famous. You know, now used to kids would say they wanted to be an astronaut when they grow up. Now they say they want to be a YouTuber or social media, you know. And we laugh at it, but it's, it's actually sad, isn't it? Like it's just all about them. them. Of course, we help them because we take about a million pictures of them every day and post it. I'm uh, guilty, you know. But uh, for many people, we're going to run somewhere to get our value. If we don't find our value in Christ, we're looking for it in money. We're looking for it in physical intimacy, in power, uh, but especially in the perception of others. And I can't help but show this video again. I think I've shown it to you before, but I want us to watch this video again. That I'm Stanley Johnson. I've got a great family. I've got a four-bedroom house in a great community. Like my car? It's new. I even belong to the local golf club. And how do I do it? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I can barely pay my finance charges. Somebody help me. <laughs> I just wish that was relatable. Um, oh, me. Hey, listen, don't you feel like that? Just, you, you just can't help it. You're, you, we, we have such a longing for the praise of man, for the perception of others. We all want to be seen as better, uh, more successful, more attractive, more wealthy, and in Ananias' and Sapphira's case, more generous than others, right? It's the feeling. We want the feeling of generosity without the real heart and sacrifice to back it up, the feeling of success. And I just want to say two things here. There's a personal false praise of ourself here. It's still the praise of man, right? You're still seeking the praise of man. You're just manipulating the facts to convince yourself that you're better than you really are. <laughs> it's like anybody who doesn't want to admit they're a sinner, you know? It's like when I tell people at the welcome, a lot of Sundays here, if you're not bumped and bruised and, and wicked, you don't belong here. You're a wicked person. If without the Holy Spirit living in your life, you would choose yourself 100% of the time. You would do what pleases you. You're, you are a Christian and still do it, more, probably more than 50% of the time. So, you know, and so, you know, sources say that the average giving person uh, for all American churches uh, between 2013 and 2018 was an overall average of $2,297, bucks. According to a nonprofit source, only 5% of church members give regularly. Households that make more than 75000 are the least charitable. Nationwide, Christians today give 2.5% of their income. 2.5%. For comparison, during the Great Depression, that number was 
37% of those who consider themselves evangelicals don't give to churches at all. According to a study from the University of Notre Dame cited in the book, uh, The Paradox of Generosity, when it comes to giving away 10% of finances, only 2.7% of people, religious or non-religious, fall into this category. We don't like to hear that, do we? (laughs) I don't like to talk about money in church, right? We like to manipulate the facts so it looks like we give more than we actually do, or we feel like we give more than we actually do. We can feel better about who we are. We like to break, I know a lot of people, they like to break their finances down into categories, you know, taxes, housing, you know, interests, necessities. And then we take the final portion and we'll give 10% of that portion. Yeah, we'll give, we'll take the scraps and we'll give God a portion of the scraps. Church, let me just ask you this. I'm not trying to condemn you, but how is that different from Ananias and Sapphira? Manipulating the facts to make it look like we give more than we actually do. We need to be careful with how we record these things. And to be clear, I don't know what you make. All right, I don't know. I don't look at, I don't look at what you give. I have someone else do that and tell me. <laughs> just seeing if you were listening. I was just a check. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do not know what anybody in here, but I don't even know what I give. I, I pray it's, I believe it's over 10%, but I can tell you one thing, it's not enough. All right, it'll never be enough. But I, one thing I do is about this time of year, we, we nominate new people in, coming into the fall. We nominate new people for different roles, uh, ministry teams in our church and sometimes new small groups. And, and we as a church give approval to that in a vote. I don't like the word vote, but it's a, it's a public approval of these leaders. And so I don't look at what those leaders give, but I do ask Miss Lynn, I say, look, if there's a leader that's being nominated for a position that doesn't give at all, would you just make note of that? I don't want to know what they give. I just want to know if they don't because I don't think anyone should be leading in the church that doesn't give a penny to the ministries they're leading. That just seems unbiblical. But other than that, I, I don't. I don't know what you make. And that's why I can still love all of you, and I don't know which ones of you are stingy. <laughs> and by the way, if you're a member of this church in good standing, you can call Miss Lynn tomorrow, and you can ask her what I give. You can ask, you can ask her what... Vicky and I make and you can look for yourself I, you'll get a number that I don't even know <laughs> but I just know we our family gives regularly and I don't say that to brag I say that to say it will never ever be enough if I gave it all away it's still not enough and I'm not talking about buying your way into God's favor but I'm talking about God getting glory from our generosity. I don't care what you give. I do care about your spiritual maturity. I do care that you know the joy that I have found in my life by being in a generous family and by having money put aside to be generous with. I I, I want you to know that joy. And you'll never know it unless you talk to God, right? And who knows, maybe Ananias did some creative accounting to convince himself that the amount he gave to the apostles was actually all of it. But... Uh, Maybe he factored in his labor and his taxes and his travel expenses, I don't know. But in God's eyes, he was lying to himself, he was lying to God, and he was lying to the church. And for what? For the praise of man. So there's a personal false praise of ourselves, but second, there's a public false praise of others. Now, some Christians flaunt money and some don't, but what I have found, I've noticed in my life, that those that are stingy in private often like to give in public. You know, 
so it's seen. They have a, an insecurity that longs for the praise and adulation of others. Ananias and Sapphira are two examples of blatant Christian hypocrisy in the church, people faking their own spiritual depth in an attempt to impress others. And by the way, uh, just as a side note, the New Testament church was not a group of socialists and communists. All right. Peter makes this clear when he when he asks rhetorical questions in Acts five, verse four. Listen, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You know what Peter's saying? He said, you could have done what you wanted with it. You didn't have to sell it. Then he says, and after it was sold, was it not at the government's disposal? Is that what it said? No, it said your disposal. The church didn't go around telling other church members what to give. They voluntarily gave that, all right? Now, listen, I believe in a biblical tithe as a starting place for giving. And if you want to know where I stand on that biblically from Scripture, I can show you, right? Matter of fact, it sickens me that so many of my Reformed brothers who love to talk about the grace of God are down on the tithe. And I always ask them this question. I say, well, if the grace of God, if the law of God demanded 10%, what in the world does the grace of God demand? Wouldn't it be more than 10% when I think about what Christ has given me? And, and listen, I want you to know, we saw this last week. God will judge this church if we don't spend the money that you give to God through it well. But that doesn't, that doesn't determine how much I give, right? I don't determine it just, if you're not at a church that you, do, you, you trust, then don't give it all. Don't be, be here if you don't trust the word of God and the people of God to spend it in a way that honors God. But that was just a side note. <laughs> Grace demands more. And listen, it, it's still got to be voluntary. No man was ever coerced in the Bible. We're not coerced to obey God. We're not forced to obey God. That's a choice we make with the power of the Holy Spirit in us by the grace of God. God help us. We would have never chosen God if it weren't for him and we wouldn't have any gifts to give if it weren't for him. That's why Peter says in Acts 5, 5, 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now listen, a good testimony is biblical, right? Just not a manipulated one that's based on longing for man's praise. I don't think we should go around saying, I don't give a rip what anybody thinks of me. I'll be who I am. I am who I am. Well, I hope who you are is growing toward Christ-honoring reputation, right? So I'm not saying just throw your reputation, but don't manipulate your reputation to make yourself look better than you are. Remember that in your next argument with your spouse because <laughs> we're very prone to make ourselves look better than we are. What's sad is that Ananias probably knew Proverbs 27 verse 2, which says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. So he had to manipulate the truth to instigate his own praise, longing for the approval of others. And by the way, I believe this one attribute can keep you out of heaven. John 12 verse 42 says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, meaning they believed in Jesus. They believed about him. <laughs> But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose their social standing, right? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Listen to this verse. 
whether it's praise, a personal praise for yourself uh, or the public false praise of others, it's still a longing that's not of God. Listen to this, Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. It's good to practice righteousness, just not for the purpose of them seeing you. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, uh, we, we have a joke in our house. If someone brags on themselves, we're, we're like, well, there goes your reward, you know, because you've already bragged on yourself. <laughs> You're not going to get any more reward. Verse 2 of Matthew 6. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I, this reminds me of a telethon. You know, in those telethons where they'll go, you know, someone just gave $10,000. It was so-and-so, Dr. Blah, 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 right? Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Church, I hope all of you live long enough in your faith to know the joy of no one knowing the godly things you do, right? No one but God. There's a special intimacy between you and God when you do something that no one knows about and it's honoring to God and it's glorifying to God. It's a joy, I, you know, secret servants of God. And I believe we have many of them in this church. I really do. Deep fakes follow mighty works of God. Deep fakes long for the praise of man. And third, to wrap this up, deep fakes are God's tool to purify the church with holy fear. God's judgment of sin in a public way purifies the church in at least two ways. First, it reminds fakes, phony Christians, of God's judgment, right? It's good. It's testimonies, people are like, you know, people have different testimonies of coming to faith, but there are some testimonies where people were scared out, they weren't scared into heaven, they were scared out of hell, you know? And what I say is praise God, you were scared. Praise God, the holiness of God gave you a holy fear of him. Hell is forever. And though God is loving, he's also just and must punish sin. And though much of his justice goes unseen, you don't know what people, what are happen, what's happening to people in private or why got bad things happen to people. That's for God to know. And we, don't, we can't see hell visibly right now, but uh, those that don't know him will. But any public display of God's justice now is a reminder of God's holy character. That's why Acts 5, 4 says, you've not lied to man, you lied to God. It's just like David when he slept with Bathsheba. Uh, a married woman killed her husband, Uriah. David says in Psalm 51, verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Church, I don't know every sin that you're committing. I don't know who's sleeping around in here. I don't know who's hoarding money. I don't know who's cheating. I don't know who's lying. I don't know who's uh, living a lie before the church. It's not God's will for me to know until he reveals it. But I do believe, and I can testify that as a church, we seek to protect our church family from false doctrine and from hypocritical faith. I mean, as a pattern. And in the last five years, I have seen God step in and expose the sins of some of our members. And they've had to step away from leadership. I didn't do it. I didn't expose it. God exposed it. And I've seen the judgment of God. I felt the judgment of God on my own life. And I pray God's judgment on you when you sin, not for your downfall, but for your sanctification. 
But I even for my own children, I pray. I know God has to put them in a crucible of, of he doesn't tempt them, but he puts them in these crucibles of, of struggles and trials and failures to teach them. I just pray it's the safest environment as God will allow. And I don't think I'm better. I don't want people to be removed from the church, but I do believe God has a plan to keep his church and every local church pure. And Piperton Baptist is no exception. Fake Christians take note. God will judge us all. He is holy and he's just in all his ways. And it's a good reminder for the church. And lastly, second, it removes flippancy from our faith. Two times we're told of the purifying fear that fell on the New Testament church. Once in Acts 5.5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Can you imagine being a 20-year-old, a 22-year-old, a 24-year-old? You're sitting around, you're kind of like shallow in your faith. You're really, you kind of believe in Jesus, but you're like, you're watching all these miracles happen and you're, you're kind of on the, the, the fence of your faith, right? And then two minutes later, you're watching this guy die, drop dead in front of you, rebuked by God, and you're carrying that dead body out to bury it. And you come back in and it happens again to his wife. That'd shake you off that fence of faith, wouldn't it? You'd, you'd pull that other leg over <laughs> on the side of Christ. And that's what God's, one of God's purposes was in this story. Again, in Acts 5.10, immediately she fell down at, her, at his feet and breathed her last. And great fear came upon, verse 11, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Take note. And by the way, if you fail to discipline your kids or show your kids what justice looks like in any form or fashion, don't worry. God will show them. But it'd be better if you showed them first. It'd be better if you showed them judgment. And I don't mean in a wicked way. I don't mean in a, in a punishing, a hateful way. But I do mean as, as discipline for your children's sin. We're, as parents, supposed to be the rod of correction for our families. And that doesn't mean always a, a spoon or a belt. Maybe a timeout. Whatever works best for your children. But if you're not doing anything, I promise you God will, God will make up for it. He can teach us what we fail to teach our family. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. God's love doesn't negate his justice. And when we fail to spot a fake, God will eventually reveal it. And when he does, here's what's going to happen. Holy fear, holy purifying fear will follow. So whether we're fakes uh, trying to dodge God's judgment or we're true believers who are flippant in our faith, take note of the carnage of sin. It's a tool God uses to purify his holy church and he uses it to purify you. I say there, but by the grace of God go I. I should be a dead man right now. But by the grace of God, I stand before you. That is the only thing that keeps me <laughs> standing, all right? And for those of you who feel like fa failures, I'm not here to, to run you into the dirt. I'm here to run you to the cross of Jesus Christ in repentance and forgiveness and faith. Would you stand? Father God, we are all in need of a Savior. And Lord, as we see the things happening around the world, God, it, 
that alone should put us on our spiritual toes and, and put us on the edge of our seats and create in us a longing to have to abide in you better, God. Lord, and I, I know some of us feel like we're so far behind the curve that we'll never catch up before Jesus returns. Lord, I feel like that. But God, we got to put our, one foot in front of the other and say, God, what is it that you want to work on me today? What is it? I don't want to be a phony. I don't want to be a fake. What's in my life that's making me fake? I don't want to be a fake Christian. And I know there are areas of my life that are hypocritical and I want to change it. I don't know if it's yelling at your kids to stop yelling. <laughs> I don't know if it's uh, looking like a, a generous person when you're really not. But whatever it is, God, you know the heart of man. It's not for me to know. Our business is with you. And so I pray, God, that we would do business with you this, this morning. I pray if there are people here that don't know you, that you'd scare them out of hell. <laughs> scare them to the cross. Let them have a holy fear of a loving God who must punish sin with no exceptions. And I pray that they would call on the name of Jesus and be saved today. I pray for others that may need to just call this church their home and plug in and serve in a tangible way. I ask that we would be obedient to you. In Jesus' name. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.